Welcome. I welcome you as worshipers to the second Sunday of Lent at McGregor Evangelical Mennonite Church, 2021, February 28th. We're going to be singing together mostly songs from our hymn book, so if you would like to take a moment to find those songs, here are the names and the numbers. Come Thou Almighty King, number 267. Seek Ye First, number 42. Open Our Eyes, Lord, number 383. Lord, we praise you, number 83. And the last song is not in our book, but it's called, Will You Come and Follow Me? So the numbers again, 267, 42, 383, 83. You are welcome as worshipers, and we also welcome the presence of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Come, thou almighty King. You ask us to set our minds on you, to walk before you and be blameless. You teach us what matters, and you do not hide your face from us. With each step along the path, we are transformed into who you made and called us to be. God, you teach us that when we lose our life, we save it. 
With each step along the path, we hope against hope in your promises. God, you say you will make us exceedingly fruitful, that you will bless us. With each step along the path, we take up our cross and follow you. We believe your everlasting covenant is to be God to us, and that we will live forever. We call out to you as you call us deeper into this covenant. verses 23 to 31. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it.
calls to deep. We call to you from the depths of our hearts. We confess when we have stayed on the edges, not listening to each other, not taking the path you show. We confess when we have strayed from the way, silencing suffering, forfeiting life. We name now, in silence, the forces that keep us from deep commitment. Deep calls to deep. You call to us from the depth of your love, Calling us to deep commitment, we come to you, God. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our God, we come before you, recognizing that all too often, who it is that we think that you are is based more on us than it is on your word. Our God, from the depths of our heart, we want to apologize for this. It is so hard for us to live in the world that we do, to see it through the eyes that we have, and to imagine that you wouldn't be lockstep with us every inch of the way. And our God, while we know that there are issues with seeing things like that, nevertheless, it's hard for us not to do. And so we pray, God, help us with this. God, we pray, make yourself known to us. The only way to address this issue is to spend the time with you that it takes to know who you are apart from us. Lord, we pray that you will help us to do just that. And God, we continue to pray on in ways connected to this. Because we know in the same way that having the wrong idea of who you are based upon who we think and not who it is that we are told, in the same way, the same thing corrupts how it is we think of other people. Lord, we confess that all too often we are 
more than willing and ready to hate though you called us to love, to write off though you called us to build bridges, and to tear down though you called us to build up. And Lord, it hurts us in the pits of our being that this is true, but we find it all the same so hard to change. But God, we know again that by holding on to you, this can be overcome. That by building our relationship with you, we can come to see your creation as you see it. And so again, Lord, we pray, please strengthen us so that we can do just that. And finally, in the same way as how we think of the world around us all too often, instead of seeing it as the wonderful creation that you made, we see it as nothing but a write-off to be used, abused, destroyed, and thrown away. But that is not what you have made. That is not what you have said was good. And that, we know, is not what you tasked us to do when you made us in your image. And so again, Lord, we pray, be with us. Stand close to us. And help us as we try to grow our relationship with you so that we can again see things as you see them. Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. Mark 8, 31 to 38. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called a crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. When I think of Simon Peter, I imagine a scene that happens far before we meet him in the Gospels. A scene that almost certainly didn't happen, but some version of it would have, as it does to all people growing up in occupied countries ruled by outsiders with an iron fist. What I imagine is a scene where young Simon walks at his parents' side. Two steps for their one, he's maybe four. His father is talking to him in wide, articulating gestures, the kind that you use to get young boys his age to laugh to no end. And he's telling Simon stories of all kinds as they trek on, each with varying degrees of factuality, of the I caught a fish this big kind that usually and occasionally would get Simon's mother snorting and shaking her head as they plodded on. 
The family is making a trip, the four miles or so it is, between their home in Bethsaida and the bustling metropolis of Capernaum in order to pick up some things. They are by no means alone on their journey. People bustle up and down the busy road on either side of them, but some distance ahead there is a clump of people, and as the little family approaches, the story Simon's father is telling comes to a stop. His arms fall to the sides of him, and he looks at his wife. In the group ahead, there is that unmistakable crimson of Roman uniforms. Without so much as a word, Simon's mother pulls the boy in close and meets his gaze. Close your eyes, she tells him. Plug your ears. Then his father, in a fluid motion, picks him up, hugging him tight to his chest, and they walk on as quietly as they can past the group. Simon is doing what his mother told him. I shut ears plugged. He can hear his father's heart beating a little fast. But after a while, Simon, curious as all four-year-olds are, opens his eyes. And he sees a man who had been beaten, whose mouth is open, lying on what looks like two crossed wooden planks. It looks like he's crying, but still all Simon can hear is his father's heartbeat, his father's breathing in and out and in. He sees two soldiers bend down and begin to lift the man and what he is on until it stands upright in the air. Soon Simon is shaking, terrified, and it's then when his parents both take notice. His mother clasps her hand over her son's eyes and on they walk, shortly arriving in Capernaum. Crucifixion was just as much a deterrent used by the Romans in those days as a punishment. The victims were displayed along major routes outside of the cities for all possible troublemakers to see. I assume Simon's family then would have returned home by a longer road that night, and the young Simon would have still been ashen when his father explained to him what they had seen in terms that a four-year-old might be able to understand. Maybe he would have placed his son on his knee, maybe he would have hugged him to his chest again, then... Someday, my son, the scriptures tell us there will come a man who will bring justice to those bad people who did that to that man. The Messiah, we will call him, and when he comes, things like that won't happen anymore. Again, whether or not this is how child Simon's eyes were open to the violence of the Romans, that I don't know. At least it's plausible, I would think. But that this message of a coming Messiah who would bring a righteous reckoning was playing on loop every time Simon witnessed the increasingly commonplace atrocities that Rome inflicted on the Judeans, that we do know with a little bit more certainty, because a lot of the sources that we have from that time from these people under the boot of Rome say just that. Soon the Messiah will come. Soon the one who will drive the Romans out will be here and he will, he will show them a taste of their own medicine. Soon things will be set to what we think is right. This is what Simon would have grown up internalizing. And it's into this belief in his soul, this belief about how one day this Messiah would come, that John the Baptist would have spoke. John the Baptist, who preached so widely and loudly about how imminently a savior would come. John the Baptist, who had preached so fervently and feverishly that all of the region of Galilee, we were told where Simon lives, was completely whipped into a religious fervor and frenzy for the, for the coming of the one who was so long awaited and prophesied. 
What in Simon's heart was once a possibility would have come to be instead an inevitability. This Messiah he knew would come and when he did, things would be set to right finally. And then came the whispers, the, the rumors of a man named Jesus, a man who matched John's description of what that Messiah would be like, a man who it was said that John himself claimed was the one that all of Judea was longing for. Soon these whispers would have grown into anticipation, like flames spreading quickly among the people who had been primed, placed on edge by John, like kindling, thirsting for that spark. People like Simon, people who knew the need of this coming Messiah, who saw the need for it, people who had seen the oppression and the violence and the injustice that the Romans had brought, people like Simon for whom a life of oppression had radicalized them to their core. And then and one day we read in the beginning of Mark that fire in Simon is lit. Simon and his brother were working in their boat and a man appears before them and it doesn't take them long to figure out who he is. Follow me, Jesus calls to them. And there is nothing in how these men were raised that allows them to do anything else. They have to know if the rumors are true. They just have to. And so they leave behind all that they have and they follow him. Not long after the brothers chose to follow Christ, they saw the situation that we talked about a couple weeks back. Jesus is preaching in a synagogue and a man with demons jumps up and calls him the Holy One of God. In unfazed, Jesus casts the demons out as if they are nothing to him. And the hopes of Simon in that moment, I think, were lifted a little more. They travel on and Simon sees Jesus perform another miracle and then another acts that show that without a doubt God is here, that God is with them, that God is on their side. People with leprosy are healed. People who were paralyzed are made able by Christ to walk again. And with each passing day and with each passing act of wonder, Simon sees that the number of people that are following this man, that are following Jesus, it, it continues to increase. At first, it's just him and his brother, but soon there are others and an inner circle is formed, a thing that all great leaders need around them. Then as Jesus goes on, he begins to preach and teach more, building bridges to the likes of tax collectors, people that were frowned upon by all of society, but are nevertheless needed as the backbone of any kind of movement that would ever have any amount of hope. It's standing up to the might of the Romans. And as the months go on, more and more people are brought into the cause. And with each new bridge built, each new miracle, each new people listening to the words of Christ, that, that crowd following them begins to grow and then continues to grow. His following continues to expand and soon out of that smaller inner group exploding into the hundreds and then the thousands and then a number that is uncountable are the followers of Christ and they are all chanting Jesus' name. Soon other leaders of Judea, ones that many saw as in the pocket of Rome come out to challenge Christ who they were obviously increasingly seeing as a threat and over them Jesus rose time and time again victorious answering their barbs and their accusations and their attempts at trickery every step of the way and in time even some of the Romans themselves soldiers of esteem came to Jesus begging for his miracles and when he answers them many of them begin to follow as well. Soon 
soon in Simon's eyes what was to be found in Jesus could no longer be seen as some mere faction, could no longer be seen as some small movement. In the eyes of Simon and any other man, woman, or child who like him was primed by a life of injustice to see just what was about to happen, it became obvious that now was the time, that soon would arrive the prophesied revolution itself, and Jesus, this Jesus, would be the one charging at its lead. And when it came, Simon, who was now called Peter, meaning the rock, would be himself at his leader's side. Who do the people think I am? Jesus calls out to Simon, his right-hand man. They think you are Elijah. They think that you are the second coming of John the Baptist. They, they think you are a prophet. Peter replies to this man that his hope is now fully in. But who do you think I am? Jesus asks his most trusted servant. And without a fiber of his being in disagreement, Peter replies, You are the Messiah. This question to Peter is the first time in the book of Mark that the word is used by someone in the story to describe Jesus. The only other time it is used before this is when Mark says it in the opening of the book, and he's writing decades past the fact. This is what brings us into today's passage. It begins by Jesus teaching his followers something new. Soon, he told them, there will come a day when he would be captured and he would be put to death. And this would be necessary, he said, to fulfill all that needed to be done. And Peter is stunned by this because of course he was. This wasn't what he thought was part of the plan. The Messiah who would conquer the enemies of Israel wasn't supposed to die. The Messiah who at the head of an army would lay low the Romans, the Messiah who would bring justice to those who suffered nothing but injustice all their lives, the Messiah who would make the world into a place where little children would no longer be forced to grapple with the hell of what death is while they are still toddlers, this Messiah wasn't supposed to die. The Messiah who Peter had been taught to expect all his life, who had grown to expect all his life, wasn't supposed to meet this end. And so Peter told Jesus as much. We read that he rebuked him. He rebuked his leader. He rebuked his Messiah. He rebuked his teacher. To which Jesus gazed at his strongest friend, the one that he had called his rock, right into the depths of his soul. And he said, get behind me, Satan to the undoubted collective gasp of everyone gathered around them. And then he carried on. What you think the Messiah is here for are the thoughts of sinful men, not what is commanded by our loving God. Look at what we have done up until now. Look at the demons that we have cast out. Look at the people that we have healed. Look at the love that we have shared to the world. Look at the things that I have taught. Look at the people I have taught them to. Look at all of those following us whom we have shown that we care for beyond a shadow of a doubt. What in any of that makes you think that I have come with a sword in my hand to kill the Romans? They say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you that there is nothing in that which brings violence to an end, Peter. So I kill the Romans because they are persecuting us, as truly terrible as that is. Then what? 
They in turn come to fight my people again because they feel that they've been wronged and back and forth and back and forth until... Until what? Where is the justice for my people in a war that never ends? Where is the justice for my creation and placing it in a situation where where some people are always feeling stood on? What peace is there when it is always kept only by the edge of a sword? No, Peter, that is the way of sinful men. If you want to follow God, if you want to follow me, the man that you called the Messiah just a little while ago, then you need to pick up your cross and follow me. Live like I have. Love like I have. Teach as I have. Work to heal as I have. Work hard to lift up those who are down to show them that they mean something. Show them who I am, Peter. Doing that will get you a whole lot farther than a sword ever would. What good would it do you to gain the world if you did it by cutting down all that you were against? Nothing. You would lose your soul in it. You would just become the one that you hate to other people. It doesn't end the violence. It doesn't stop sin. It just starts the clock again, except instead of them being the monsters you are. No, Peter. Pick up your cross and follow me. Live as I do. Love as I do. Care for others as I do. And teach others to do the same. I will always be with you to help, but, but only by doing this will the peace and justice of the kingdom of heaven ever come. This is my paraphrase of what Jesus says in our passage today. And when Jesus has ended, I imagine Peter simply just stood there for quite a while. His life up until that point had just been turned on its head, really, as it had been for a number of the other disciples as well. I mean... There's another one who we don't really know very much about except for the fact that he is described as a zealot. All their lives, they had a picture in their mind of what it would mean to follow the Messiah when the time came. Proud generals they would be, swords in hand. An idea of what it meant to follow Christ that held the idea of redemptive violence as the same thing as piety. And in a moment that was yanked away from them. But here's the thing. It was the church that lived on, not Rome. The church that especially through its early days really knew how to follow Christ through the thick of everything, no matter how hard that was. Do you want to bring change to the world? Do you want to bring justice that lasts? This is how you do that. Not at the head of an army, not with a gun in your hand, not by grinding your enemies into the dust. By living for other people, loving them, caring for them, by living for God no matter what. Even during my lifetime, short as that might be, or long, the picture that has been painted of our Messiah has begun to change it has become increasingly common to once again imagine Jesus, the one who's literally called the Prince of Peace, as the great warrior that Peter had in mind, just now a gun in hand, killing all those who stand against his church. 
And while there are readings that you can take from Scripture to support some version of that, the moment you even slightly begin to weigh them against the larger picture that we get of our Savior in the Bible, know that falls apart like paper in the rain. And there is real danger in seeing our Messiah like that. There is real danger because again and again throughout Scripture, we are told, even here in our passage today, that we are to live as Christ did. So if who you think Christ is is violent to his core, why would you expect yourself to act any differently? If your Messiah is violent, you will be violent. If your Messiah is filled with hatred of others, then you will hate others. If your Messiah treats those you disagree with as if they are the scum of the earth, why would you do anything else? But this is not who our Messiah is. Our Messiah healed the sick. He raised the dead. He loved those who hated him. He cared for those and forgave those who persecuted him. Even to the point of death, he rose from the dead to heal our sins. He taught all those who came before him. He reached out to others to build bridges with them when no one else would. And so today, I call to you all, my brothers and sisters, in Christ. Pick up your cross and follow this man. There is no peace to be found with the Messiah that is imagined by sinful men, the one who comes with only a sword in his hand and no care for the world that he made. But with the Messiah sent by God who we see in the book of Mark, with him we are told the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let my love
Today's benediction comes from the book of Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go now and live as Christ calls us to.